0: And there you go. Engineers are always in charge. That's the name of the game. Hey, everybody, I'm Kai Rizda. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us.
1: And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us on this Tuesday, which is the day that we do our weekly deep dive. And today we're going to get into climate NIMBYism, or we might also say climate not in my backyard ism. Yes, that's it. Anyway, the basic idea is this, that just like we see people fighting housing development in communities of across the country because they don't want it in their area. There are NIMBYs voting down big renewable energy projects, which we are going to need someplace in order to build at a scale that makes us actually serious about fighting climate change.
0: So, how bad is NIMBYism impeding the fight for fight against, not fight for? You don't want to fight for climate change; you don't want to fight against climate change. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to talk about what we can do about that. Ted Norhouse is the founder of the Breakthrough Institute, that's a group that researches tech solutions to environmental problems. Ted, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So here's a news item that I saw literally this morning. Uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, the Swedish uh, environmental activist, is taking part in a protest against a wind farm that would displace the Sami people who are the native peoples of the northern Scandinavian countries, Finland specifically, I believe. So not that that's not not that that's nimbyism, but there is a challenge here in reconciling climate change with some things that are maybe, you know, more problematical or at least a challenge to other things that people want to do.
2: That is true. The uh, you know Today, 80% of the global energy system is fossil fuels. If you want to get rid of all those fossil fuels, you basically have to build an entirely new energy system. And if you're going to do that primarily, as a lot of people want to, with renewable energy, mm-hmm. uh, which has many good things about it, but one of the challenges of it is that it has a really, really big land use footprint, all those wind turbines and solar panels, and then all the transmission lines that you need to build to move them all over the place to get the electricity to people where they need it, uh, has a big footprint. um, And that creates lots of land use conflicts. And if you're going to build this system, and if you're going to build it quickly, you need to figure out how you're going to manage all those Mm -hmm. conflicts.
1: So what is driving sort of the conflict right now, who is driving the conflict? you know who are the groups particularly that are saying, hey we don 't want these projects where we are
2: well i don 't think you can point your finger at any you know one particular group I mean uh, sometimes it's uh, you know a lot of times it 's just local communities, whether they 're an indigenous uh, group like the Sami people or um, just like, you know, local people in communities like, you know, in places like Indiana. Mm -hmm. um, uh, You know, a lot of people are not wild about the idea that the way that we need to solve climate change is to basically industrialize the landscape that they live in the middle of. Um, So... Mm -hmm. um, You know, sometimes that's people who, you know, in coal or gas or other communities uh, actually tend to like fossil fuels. Sometimes it's environmental groups that care a lot about wildlife and ecosystems and various things that are being disrupted um, by energy development, even when it's renewable energy development. And, you know, sometimes it's indigenous groups. Um, sometimes it's homeowners who don't want a big offshore wind farm in their viewshed, which is happening up and down the Atlantic coast right now. Um, so I, I, I think that the sort of effort to be like, well, it's all the environmentalists or it's all these just stupid homeowners <laughs> or it's all just um, uh, sort of fossil fuel Koch brothers funding um, uh, people to uh, oppose renewable energy sources that they don't like. I don't think any of those stories uh, is is really the whole story, or even most of the story. Um, it's really just uh, there's a huge footprint, there's a huge impact here. Uh, there are going to be trade offs that we need to be willing to make if we're going to build this energy system. And when you get on the ground, a lot of people don't like the trade offs.
0: So how do we reconcile this? Right, because this does seem kind of existential. It's an existential problem to an existential problem, right? The existential problem of climate change, but then also the existential problem of not in my backyard, don't build a wind farm where I can see them, and let's protect wildlife while building, you know, green energy.
2: Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, a couple of different ways uh, that you can deal with it, and you'll probably have to do all of them. I mean, the first is, at least in the United States, uh, we have a thing called the National Environmental Policy Act in California, we have a version of it called the California Environmental Quality Act. A lot of other states have similar statutes that just make it really, really difficult um, to build things that people locally don't want. Uh, that can be hard enough as it is, but these statutes basically allow private interests to sort of endlessly litigate and relitigate public infrastructure decisions. Uh, that often have been made by elected representatives. Mm -hmm. Um, So we send our members of, uh, you know, we elect our congressmen, they go to Congress, they have this deliberative democratic process, they decide to spend lots and lots of our money to build all this infrastructure to solve climate change. And then we basically have these statutes on the book that allow private interests in communities and localities all over the country to just kind of almost endlessly litigate uh, those decisions uh, in ways that sort of, I would argue, undermine sort of actual sort of democratic, democratically accountable decision making. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's part of the problem. I think the other thing, when you just look at the scale of the land use necessary to do a very heavy renewable uh, energy grid, um, which is primarily powered by these Uh, variable sources of energy, uh, wind turbines, solar panels, where you really, to make that work, you have to not only build, really overbuild the system, you've got to move that electricity, you know, very long distances, so you get all the problems with building the transmission. So, you know, you look at nuclear energy, you look at, Uh, some of the carbon capture technologies, you know, all of these things have their own sort of NIMBY and other opposition, Um, but I think a a more balanced mix of low carbon technologies is one way that you can really reduce the land use footprint because both nuclear and if you can capture the carbon from fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuels have actually much, much uh, lower land use impacts because they're denser sources of energy.
1: You know, you were talking just now about sort of the endless litigation um, by groups opposed to, you know, big projects that might have been determined by elected officials, but litigation costs money and time, and which is another form of resource. And it reminds me almost of Sort of how our highway system got rolled out in this country, where the groups with the least amount of power and resources in our country ended up with these highways through their communities. And if the way that NIMBYism is being, you know, is happening in this sector is based on litigation, is that not also creating this dynamic where? If you're low income or hold less political power, you're more likely to end up with these projects in your area as opposed to somebody else?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the sort of folks who just sort of defend, um, you know, things like the National Environmental Policy Act will often do so saying, well, no, no, this is the thing that we have. And we need to sort of protect these sort of low income, marginalized communities that otherwise get all the bad dirty infrastructure foisted on them. But the evidence is quite the opposite. What the evidence points to is exactly what you say, which is the folks who are using these statutes are actually you know, wealthy, upper income, very privileged communities that have the resources, the legal resources and otherwise, to fight these projects and to do it for years or even decades on end. So You're right that like the way we do this now, even, uh, you know, often um, sort of low income uh, marginalized communities are are sort of invoked in whose name we need these things because otherwise the elected officials are just going to sort of jam these things down the throat of the low income communities. But it doesn't work that way at all. In fact, the way that these laws work now, they just sort of tilt the playing field even more towards high-income, wealthy Mm. communities that have the resources to fight projects.
0: Here's another uh, slice of of that part of, of using these laws. A very quick Google here tells me that CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, which you hear about in the news all the time out here, as you know, dealing with big projects, was passed and signed into law in 1970. So I don't think in 1970 people could spell climate change, let alone understand what it was. And now here we are 53 years later trying to save the planet while adhering to a state environmental law and also uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, which was passed before CEQA was, that, that are from literally a different time.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one of the ironies... Um, uh, in this moment is that, uh, you know, we are sort of, um, you know, these environmental laws that were passed a generation ago, and there were often very good reasons why those laws were passed at the time are now in a lot of cases, the primary obstacle to building the clean energy infrastructure that we need to take on climate change. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's coming. All of this is coming at the time and we have so much more public money available for these projects. The Inflation Reduction Act has billions of dollars in grants and loans for clean energy project. Um, I know there was some money for that in the infrastructure law as well. There's probably some leftover COVID relief money for that. How um, significant of a problem is this going to be in actually getting those funds out the door to help us meet our climate goals?
2: Well, the Inflation Reduction Act alone put up close to a half trillion dollars over the next decade to build clean energy infrastructure. And if you look at, um, you know, there's all sorts of sort of estimates and modeling and forecast of all the emissions reduction that that will create. But if you look at those models, Uh, And you look at, for instance, the the Princeton model that Jesse Jenkins, uh, who's an old colleague of mine at Princeton, um, uh, uh, runs on sort of how much emissions reduction do we get from the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, he finds that if you can't reform these laws and get all the transmission lines, just the transmission lines built, you lose 80% of the emissions reductions, so a half trillion dollars. And we don't get most of the emissions reductions that are anticipated uh, and intended because we literally can't build the infrastructure.
1: How do you change people's minds about not wanting this stuff in their backyard?
2: You know I mean it 's hard. I think that everybody wants the stuff in someone else 's backyard, which is why I think the only way to fix the problem is that you have to deal with it at a state and national level um, you're not there's an idea that you can kind of go in and if you do better community engagement and and you really are kind of like get everybody invested and we're gonna take input from everybody and all the feedback and then everyone will be like, okay, let's build the massive wind farm in my community. There's just no evidence that that actually works. Um, and we got lots of cases where developers just by the book did everything that everyone says they should do and they still can't get the projects approved. Um, so ultimately, like, we're gonna to have to make a decision at a federal level and places like California at the state level that we want this infrastructure, Um, uh, we want to build it now, we want it quickly. And I think at that level, it's possible to actually sort of drive um, some change and sort of change the rules. Um, And it's entirely appropriate. I mean, the local level is not necessarily the right level to make these decisions. Um, uh, And there's a national interest in building this infrastructure. uh, if we think that there's a national interest in spending this money, building the infrastructure, building a clean energy economy, then members of Congress, and, you know, I think one of the ironies here is that most of the opposition to this comes from the Democrats, who are the ones who on a straight party line vote, you know, mm-hmm. decided to spend all this money on this clean energy infrastructure, but then they, you know, they can't kind of get them, get out of their own way to make a decision to expedite siting and permitting of these of all this infrastructure so that we can actually build it um so you know i think there are sort of some hard choices that folks in the environmental community and frankly you know in the democratic party in congress and in the democratic big democratic majorities that we have in here in california are going to have to make if they actually want to see this infrastructure built
1: okay ted nordhaus is the founder of the breakthrough institute thank you so much
2: Thank you guys so much for having yeah, me. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's it's a little bit intractable, right? It's a little bit intractable because nobody ever said, build that big wind farm in my backyard. That was Right. One.
1: And it sounds like the, the solution is that you're just going to have to force people to accept yep. it. Yep. But that's the kind of thing that costs you an election. Yeah. And people in state and federal government really like to keep those jobs. So... <laughs> you'd be kind of just eating it
0: <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. I don't know as, man as I said existential problem to an existential crisis uh, what do you think if you uh, want a wind farm in your backyard let us know have renewable energy projects in your town been voted down let us know you know how to do it six two seven eight. Five zero eight. you be smart or you can just plain old email us me smart at marketplace org we're coming right back news. Kimberly Adams, go.
1: So every day there's a new um, chat GPT story and Mm. AI story and businesses are just scrambling across the board to figure out how to incorporate this technology into their workflows, how to protect themselves from the technology. And as we were discussing the other day, I think we are going to be hearing stories about our kind of Lurching adjustment to this new reality for some time to come. But there was a piece in Wired that, you know, kind of reminded me of the value of taking the moment to really sit and think big picture about, you know, what it all means. So there's <laughs> Wired has a spiritual advice columnist. Hmm. Um, talking about technology and somebody wrote in a letter and the letter was I can't code and this bums me out because with so many books and courses and camps there are so many opportunities to learn these days I suspect I'll understand the machine revolution a lot better if I speak their language should I at least try and you know the columnist gets back to them with this idea that you know We were taught for so long that coding is the future. Learn to code and you're always going to have a job. And now we have AI that can write its own code. And so many computer and technology interfaces that you can build things with that don't require you to use code. But if coding is sort of the fundamental language on which... All of the building blocks of our new economy and social system, to some extent, are built. There may be an intrinsic value of just kind of knowing how it all works. So even if we don't need to learn to code to accomplish a task there may be value in having coding as part of our base level education so we know that we understand better the building blocks of how our world works. Kind of like they used to teach people Latin so you could understand (laughs) a little bit better how the English language works, right? And if we don't sort of understand the fundamentals of the back end of so many of these systems that we use, it limits our ability to question those systems, to see other potential outcomes to those systems. And you end up with this kind of fatalism that it has to be this way because this is how it is, because you don't understand how it came together and how it could possibly be different. It's a really thoughtful piece. And I just think as we all kind of run around like chickens with our head cut off related to, you know, all of our Mm -hmm. adjustments to AI, like, let's take a minute and really think about what it's going to mean for our society. And uh, somewhat related to that, there was a survey by a website called Resume Builder. And it's one of these online surveys of um, business leaders. They they surveyed a thousand U.S. business leaders to see how many companies currently use or plan to use chat gpt and one in four of the companies they surveyed said that they've already replaced workers with chat gpt now again one of one in four of the companies that they surveyed um you know which you have to look at the methodology because it's usually a subset of a subset and it depends on how they selected it but regardless There's a lot of companies that are starting to use this software that are already rolling it out and already figuring out things that it can do that they don't need workers for. And some of those things are hiring, writing code, and copywriting. So I'm looking... Of the companies that currently use ChatGPT, 66% use it for writing code, while 58% use it for copywriting content creation, 57% for customer support, and 52% for creating summaries of meetings or documents, (laughs) things that used to be somebody's job. So yeah, it's changing things already, probably faster than we Mm imagine. And I do think there's value to kind of understanding the back end.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think that's totally right. And it's uh, wow. One out of five, one out of four. What was it? Holy One cow. out of four.
1: One out of four. Wow. Of the companies that's they wild. surveyed. Yeah, that's wild. Mm-hmm. But like if you look at their like using it to write job description uh-huh. and draft interview questions.
0: One one does wonder what a certain company based in the Upper Midwest might be thinking about this. But anywho, <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, along those lines, the the four of us who are regulars here at Marketplace World headquarters, which I would hasten to add is about mm-hmm. a twenty or twenty-five thousand square foot uh, office space. The four of us who are here on a daily basis used to ask a lot, hey, I wonder when people are going to start coming back. And now we say, yeah, nobody's ever coming back. And the data bears that out. There's a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal today based on data from JLL. That's a property services firm that manages 4.6 billion square feet of real estate globally. Here's what it says. Asians and Europeans are going back to work at really high percentages. Office occupancy rates in Asia range from 80 to 110 percent of pre-pandemic levels, right? More people are going back to the office than actually there before. In Europe, it's 70 to 90 percent. U.S. office occupancy stands at 40 to 60 percent of pre-pandemic levels. And I think it just goes to show that ain't nobody going back to the office full time. Right. It's just really interesting. A lot of reasons for that. One is, you know, bigger homes in the United States, longer commutes to work. So it's just easier to stay at home and more painful to go in. Um, it has changed the face of American office space. And it's I don't think it's going back. I don't think it's going back. And that obviously has true effects. Mariel Segarra did a great piece for us before she left about the restaurants around our New York bureau and what they mm-hmm. were going through in Manhattan with nobody around. Um, lots of trickle-down effects, and it's a little bit... Um, it gets empty and lonely around here sometimes, I'll tell you that. I kind of miss it, you know.
1: Yeah, there's so many, you know... There have been discussions pretty much ever since this trend started of converting so much of this office space to housing, which we mm-hmm. desperately need in this country. And I hope those projects just start get going. Like, yeah. I know that there are a lot of companies still holding out hope that people are really going to come back to the office, but... Yep. We need the housing more than we need people in the offices. Yeah, you know? yeah, good point. good point. Okay, that's it for the News Fix. Let's yep. do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things.
0: All right. So we talked about early school start times and how that Mm -hmm. keeps teenagers from getting enough sleep. uh, Forget, you know, stand up too late on the back end because they didn't do their homework on time. Hello, my two oldest children. Um, But. um, (laughs) Wow. Under the bus. (laughs) Well, well, first of all, they don't listen. Second of all, even if they did, they'd be like, yes, so I did fine. I got into college anyway. um, And I talked about how late start times were good for my kids for the aforementioned reasons. Um, Here is another point of view.
1: Hi, Kai and Kimberly. It's Erin calling from Middleton, Wisconsin. As the mother of two middle school teenagers, I agree wholeheartedly with this. On Wednesdays, our school has a late start date, and the day doesn't start until 9 o'clock, and we all feel so much better on those Wednesdays. We have time to have a proper breakfast. I make the kids a hot lunch to take to school because we're not rushing to get out the door. Classes start at nine ten instead of eight twenty, and that fifty minutes makes all the difference in the world. Thanks for making me smart.
0: Yeah, can confirm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Can confirm. Totally true. Yeah, but
1: are they gonna do anything about it?
0: Well, you know, <laughs> like, it's it's a state by state thing and California's working on it, but it makes a huge difference. It just makes a huge difference for the kids.
1: Yeah. All right, one more. Amanda called to join <laughs> in to our never ending <laughs> conversation about what to call mocktails. Hi, Kai, Kimberly et al. Uh, This is Amanda from Columbus, Ohio. And I have stayed silent for many months now on the mocktail debate, but have decided it is finally time to (laughs) chime in with my defense of the term mocktail. Mm. I think that people are assuming that mock
2: means something derogatory like mocking. But to me, I hear it and I think of the older mock recipes of ye olden days like mock apple pie and mock turtle soup, where it just meant that it was a fake variety
1: or a faux variety. So unless we come up with like faux tales, which just sounds like a weird animated <laughs> show, I think we're stuck with mock tales.
0: My mother used to make mock stroganoff. <laughs> it's true.
1: Yeah. You know what? It's it's probably easier just to stick with that. Um Although faux fo-tale, tales could be fun.
0: That's a, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast. All right. We're going. Uh, and before we do, as we always do, the make me smart question and answer what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about. Here comes Julie in San Diego.
1: What is something I thought I knew but found out I was wrong about? I thought eggs should always be kept refrigerated. After a recent trip to Mexico where they are not My hosts explained that in the U.S. we wash off the protective sheen or cuticle coating that repels pathogens. Unwashed eggs last three weeks. That seems plenty of time and should make eggs cheaper, save energy, and maybe even taste better. Apparently, America, Japan, Australia, and some Scandinavian countries are the only ones who refrigerate their eggs. What? You didn't know this?
0: I didn't know this.
1: Oh. Yeah, it's uh that's why they, they we say our eggs are pasteurized. Really? That's the the process, yeah. And um have you ever gotten like farm fresh eggs from like the farmer's market or somebody in your area who might like have chickens Uh, i have not i have not. okay well never mind (laughs) no it's uh they they feel different on the outside and i think it has to do with like factory farming and because the eggs are running through in such interesting facilities they have to take that extra step where there's a
0: whole lot of chicken poop yes Okay, well, we're going to end it there. Uh, Your answers to the Make Me Smart question come to us at 508-827-6278. 508-UBSMART.
1: Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseger. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. And today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Jake Cherry.
0: Ben Tallene and Daniel Ramirez, who will apparently be in our credits in perpetuity, composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Marketplace vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough.
1: It's like the guy who wrote all the music for NPR. Oh, I know. getting credits like decades later. I know, I know. He followed me on LinkedIn and I was really really surprised. Yeah. Wow. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in. Our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.